Welcome to another edition of Community Conversations. My name is Jim Storer. I'm a founder of the Community Roundtable, and I'm joined by my capable co-host, Shannon Abram. Shannon? Hi, Jim. We are super excited to have sort of a community dream team with us today. We are chatting with the community team from Community Food Navigator. Hello, guys. Guy and gal, I guess. Hi, Shannon. Hi, Jim. It's Lisa Tallman. Nice to talk to you both again, as always. I am the executive director for the Community Food Navigator. And with me today is Israel. Israel, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah. Hi, everyone. My name is Israel Munoz. I am the online community manager at the Community Food Navigator. It's really nice to be talking with you all about the cool work we get to do. Thanks, Israel. I guess we'll jump in and talk a little bit about the Community Food Navigator. It is a a startup, a nonprofit. There are only seven of us. It was started in 2020, so right before the pandemic and into the pandemic to really expand food justice work in the city of Chicago, particularly in disinvested communities on the south and west sides of Chicago. So we get to work with really passionate people, food growers, food producers, mutual aid organizations, chefs, community gardeners and neighborhood gardeners who are out to help people access food and do that in a wide variety of ways, whether it's from just giving food away or helping institutions provide education around healthy food or helping their neighbors around education and learning about food and the food system. And we started with uh, with a digital app. I think that's somewhat due to the fact that we did start in the middle of a pandemic. And so we were app first because we could not get together with people in person. And we used that app to connect people and and strengthen that network. I don't know a lot about the food justice movement and food justice projects. And I'm really interested in how the Community Food Navigator as an entity started. Is there a precedent or a model that you are following? Or is this like brand new work that's being done in the space? It's just so interesting to me. Yes, I think we're, I'm going to say it, we're trailblazers. <laughs> we started coming out of an organization here in Chicago. It is called the Chicago Food Policy Action Council, whose purpose is around policy advocacy, getting lawmakers to put food justice issues first. But what that organization realized is they had their lane in, in policy and advocacy and that there was something missing in the food justice system that didn't belong in their lane, which is about connections, about building a network, about individuals who are in the food justice system. And again, we're saying that broadly, that's farmer, that's growers, that's producers, that's distributors, that's the pastor with a community garden, that's our school gardens at our Chicago public school system and 12 nonprofits that they work with, like this whole community of people in the food system who weren't all connected with each other. And they realized that there was a need to strengthen that network and then became apparent when the pandemic struck. 
And so this conversation about food justice started in, in probably 2019, but then when the pandemic hit and food pantries were, first were screaming for more food, it just became more and more apparent that this network needed to be strengthened and that people within the network needed to know each other to collaborate more fully, particularly in socially disinvested parts of the city of Chicago, to collaborate to feed their families and to feed their neighbors and to bring more equality in the system. Our mission is to expand food sovereignty. We we use justice because it's a little bit of a simpler term, but food sovereignty is really about people having control of the growth, distribution, supply of food within their local geographic area. And it, and it, it just wasn't happening, right? Food today is controlled by large corporations who are motivated by profit and not motivated by providing healthy, nutritious food to the most people that they possibly can. And so that's where the Community Food Navigator started. It was started because this is what communities needed that have historically not been invested in. And we hope that people, to our knowledge, like we do know this is happening in other other cities. I think there's some things happening in California, for example, but we do think that we are doing some things a bit differently, particularly on the community-led, community-powered front that other organizations have not. Listening to you talk about it, it feels like just every city should have, every community should have this ability to connect like this. And it's just, it's so inspiring to watch what you're doing. Thank you so much. The, the other thing is I want to make sure I give real credit to the people who have been in the community doing the work. What is great about Chicago is there is this very vibrant and very real urban agriculture community and network. They just didn't all know each other, right? They weren't all connected with each other, but it existed. And and so we couldn't do the work we do, except for the fact that there are already people doing the work. And our role is to amplify their work, amplify their voices, and to provide additional capacity where they may not have capacity to do things in terms of facilitating and convening across the food system. We need to get a a posse together here in Boston, Shannon. I'm involved in a bunch of sort of mutual aid projects. There's one, there's a, and this is not the same thing at all, but a community fridge right down the street from my house and my kids and I, it's part of sort of the work we do every week. I hadn't even thought about that kind of stuff on this level. And it's just, it's, it's giving me so much to think about. Yeah. And I, and I have to say, I've only been doing this work for, for a year. And we don't think about our food system. We don't think about how vast it is from beginning to end and how complex it is and or the inequality in it. And it's all connected, right? We maybe focus on food producers and growers, but Food pantries are in, our, are in our network. Mutual aid organizations are in our network. Chefs are in our network. Schools are in our network. And so it all ties together. This has been inspiring on a number of levels for me. So I, I appreciate it very much. I will actually let Israel talk a little bit about the app, given that's his major role with us at the Community Food Navigator. Yeah, thank you, Lisa. I couldn't have said anything better about the work that we do. <laughs> but yeah, the app 
it's not it's it's specifically a mobile app and the reason for that is that it that the the community that we're working with particularly are very mobile right we're 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 working with growers we're working with people working in the farms or at mutual aid stops or at community gardens and so people are often out and about and so it was just a very natural choice to make this primarily mobile it is accessible on desktop as well and we do have a decent amount of users that use the desktop version but it's as the community grows and as we get more community members into the app we're definitely finding that mobile is the more popular side of it but yeah it's a very it's a very exciting space we have a, a just kind of a main feed which is the main attraction at this point which is just folks able to share upcoming events, information, opportunities. We we also have space for people to add events specifically in like in a calendar. We have a directory of locations, specifically, you know, gardens and other important locations for folks doing this type of work. And we also have a library for people to record resources, whether it's like growing guides and things like that, things of that nature. A big part of the design of the app though is that we we really emphasize this app and this community is owned by the community. And so while we do some of the work of filling out some of those spaces, we really encourage community members to add information that they are aware of, in particular because one of the reasons that led to wanting to create this app is that there wasn't really a place or a person in this community that really knew what everyone else was doing, what every where everything else was. And so the dream for the navigator is to hopefully become that place where people can find answers, people can get a good, complete view of the food justice landscape here in Chicago and the nearby areas. Well, it's really interesting because Lisa, you presented recently at our Connect conference, and I know you inspired a lot of people with the work that you're doing at the Community Food Navigator through that presentation. And then later in the day, you won a Community Leadership Award for Outstanding Community Programming. And while this award has really focused on individual contributions in the past, the Community Food Navigator was recognized for the innovation that you showed in developing this app for your users. And so, first of all, congratulations on the award. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And Israel started to share a little bit about the app and the way it came to be and how you use it. A lot of members do struggle. A lot of community managers struggle with mobile community building. And so I'd love for you guys to share a little bit more about maybe not just your successes, but what you've learned along the way in launching this app and getting it started and kind of building it out and not necessarily all the great things that have happened, but maybe some of the things that you struggled with and you you realized you needed to go in a different direction. So are there any insights that you'd like to share around that? Yeah, I think I'll pick up where Israel left off. When he was talking, I was thinking about how we built the app, which was we are a very much community-led, community-powered organization. And so we don't do anything without community. And as Israel mentioned, we want our community to feel ownership of the app. And so even from the very building of the app, we have had groups of community members. So farmers, growers, food producers, neighborhood gardeners who have actually helped us design the app and have tested the app with us, have figured out what features they want and were important to them 
and have helped us to test those features and make sure that they work and tell us when they don't work and have helped us to continue, even to this day, evolve the app. I'll let Israel a little later talk about what we call our digital stewardship pod, but I think that's really been what has, at least from my previous experience at previous jobs, is really having community fully involved and engaged from day one in the actual creation and design of the app itself. And that has allowed for people to feel like they do own it and that it is theirs and it's not ours as the community food navigator. Now, where I think we could do a better job is we started with a group called Seed Starters that were heavily involved in probably the 2021 in 2022 years. And once we kind of got, I'll say, swept up in the actual technology building of it, the technical aspects of it, we kind of let our seed starters sort of fall off. And so they were really heavily engaged. They were on the app, they were using the app. And as we were finishing off features and things like that, we kind of lost them a little bit. Part of that is sort of a transition to a new team and other things. But now what we're doing is saying we need to get those individuals back engaged in the app. And we are literally in the middle of a campaign of reaching out to them individually to say, hey, what are you doing? What's happening in your world? And it's not like get back on the app. We, it is really about us genuinely wanting to know what is what is happening in their world? What kind of things are they doing? What is it like to be finishing up the growing season and what they're planning to do for winter? It's all about relationship building and not necessarily about getting them back on the app. But what will likely naturally happen, we hope, is that it will also bring them back to the app, not because the app is important, but because the community that we've built is important and they have been so integral to the building of that community. So I think that's probably a big lesson that we learned. We wanted to, is how do we, we've lost some momentum with them. How do we regain that momentum? And we're working to do that. But I'd love for Israel to talk about our digital stewardship pod and how we keep community first and forward and how we think about our work with the app and the community in general. Thank you, Lisa. But to follow up from what Lisa was saying, we we really emphasize community input. In a more structured sense, we have what we call our digital stewardship pod, which is a group of about 11 individuals who are community members who will meet with us every two weeks to discuss. This We will discuss all, all, all types of things, including engagement. Like sometimes we'll work together to make posts and share those posts. Sometimes we'll work on testing new features or like recently we've been really wanting to revamp some of the features of the app just because the current state of the app was very much just kind of trying to get it past the finish line. And there's definitely a lot of room for improvement. And so we are now having that DSP group help us with looking at the different aspects, looking at the events page, looking at the library, looking at the directory, and really figuring out what makes sense for a community member and how they're going to use the app, 
what makes sense to them and how the software should work for them better. Even though the DSP is one way we do that, that's really just the most formal way we do that. We are always looking for input from other users. We also do what we call onboardings, where we, you know, a lot of folks uh, working in our community are parts of farms or organizations, they're parts of, of, of teams. And so we will have just a short introduction where we'll meet with a team and we'll get them into the app and we'll talk about how they can use it. And so recently we've been reaching out to those teams again, just to do a follow-up to see how they're finding the app. And we've been receiving their feedback and hearing, okay, these are features that they don't like, or these are things where there've been some pain points. And so we are always looking for ways to get feedback. But I think another important aspect going to kind of what Lisa said about checking in with the seed starters and connecting with people is I think the fact that like the navigator isn't just the app. The app is one part of the community that the navigator is building or is trying to solidify because the, the community exists there already. We're just trying to make it easier for people to find, find each other, right? You know, we have in-person events like Lisa mentioned at Connect. We do volunteer days where our team goes to farms. And so we are very present. We make an effort to show up at other events that are in our community. And so we make an effort for people to see us so that it's not just that that the navigator is this nebulous digital thing, but we are in the community. We are reaching out to people. We are we're showing up in spaces in the community and saying, how could we be of help here rather than just asking people to come to our space and spend time in our space. And I think that's really important because again, our community is not, not everyone in our community wants to be in an app. And there's community members who are just never going to get in the app. And that doesn't mean they're not part of the Navigator community. As If they're still coming to events, if they're still connecting with other people, then they're still connecting to the Navigator. It's just the app is one of the facets of how we connect with people. I have a question just regarding the app and some of the offline events. I do firmly believe in the strength of offline events solidifying engagement in online communities. And I'm wondering how that interplay works with Within the app? Are you organizing offline events through the app? And are you seeing good results from that sort of effort? At this point, usually we try to just reinforce the events, especially when they're our own events through the app. So we will usually share leading up to the event, we'll share a little bit about the what the event's going to be about, we'll share information if there's going to be speakers, like who's speaking, and kind of try to get some of the conversations started in the app. And then after the event, we will also make sure to share, you know, if there was something that was recorded or if there are valuable resources that were shared, we we make sure to also share those in the app. So it's usually a little bit more of just using the app to support the event and to allow folks who didn't participate to get to see a little bit of what happened and connect with that. As far as like events originating from the app to reality, I don't think we're at that point yet, but there is the aspect that we have at least materialize smaller meetups and things through things like the DSP. So like our, our digital solution pod earlier this year, we started what we call our farmer's market forage, which was just a campaign to get folks to show up to farmer's markets, especially farmer's markets that people usually don't know about. And so as part of that campaign and as part of our digital stewardship pod meetings, the DSP were, were really excited about trying to do a meetup as part of the campaign. And so we figured out a couple of times and we we met up as the DSP at one of the farmers markets. And that was something that was, while the Forge was something that we started, the idea to meet up was something that the DSP initiated in one of our meetings. I would love to hear more about the actual app development. Is it like a fully homegrown solution or did you do some 
out of the box technology just for people who are listening who are like, oh, I want to do this. Yeah, it's a custom solution, but started before both Israel and I joined the organization. So I'm not sure we would have, <laughs> I'm not sure what we would have done or thought about had we been here at the beginning, but it is a completely custom built solution. Our tech developer could tell you sort of what the tech stack looks like. Israel. No, that's beyond, that's beyond. <laughs> the question was really more, did you find some sort of out of the box solution, but you built it yourself. Yeah, and that's yeah nice. we built it, we built it ourselves. And I think one of the reasons why we built it ourselves is because we wanted it to be from the community. We didn't want to present the community this out of the box solution that they were going to have to adapt to. What we wanted to build was something that the community wanted and provide features, functionality, tools that they found important and not some developer or software company thought was important that they were going to adapt to. So it fit, the custom development really fit with our community-led approach. That is amazing. In a previous life, I was a product manager for an app company. And truly one of the biggest disconnects was the developers being like, this is what our audience wants. And me being like, but no, so what they're saying is what they want is this. And then being like, no, they don't, they don't know. And you're like, no, they do know. Like this is, they're telling us. It, it is about listening and it's about relationship building. And in, they do know it's, it's about co-designing things with people, right? <laughs> and it, it's not necessarily telling people what they want. Sometimes they may need guidance, but people know what they need. And if you can facilitate conversations where they can articulate to you what they need, they will tell you what they need and you can then provide them options that help them solve their problems or solve their needs. And so that's what we have tried to do with this app and what we continue to try and do in all aspects of our work. To Israel's point earlier, the app is absolutely one part of our work. It's, it's an important part of our work, but it is not the only part of our work. I love hearing about this. So if I'm a community professional out there and I am, or even maybe I'm not a community professional, I love that in so many cases, the community, the community of actual people comes first. And it did in your case. What advice do you have for someone that's out there and is like, I have this group of people or group of organizations or group of, you know, growers and that I want to connect and I know neither of you were there in the very beginning, but what advice would you give to someone trying to get something momentum for something like this started? I would say that the biggest, that the most important thing is relationships. I think, especially in today's day and age, there's just an entire focus on numbers and on critical mass. And I think building relationships is the most valuable thing. I think when I, when I first started here, I remember our developer actually shared with me this article that was really interesting about, a, you could say a community manager who managed a community of 50 people. And so just a friend group, they created their own little, or they used uh, some software out of the box software to like create their own little social network. And it was just a group of friends. But I really took a lot from that in that, like how it much it emphasized getting to know people, getting to know what they are looking for, what they are hoping to find in the community, and also figuring out what are the things that they can offer the community, because that's that's when you can then start making connections. And that's something that we try to do a lot here. We have multiple points where we try to figure out what are people's needs what are people's expectations in joining our community and 
what are the things that they might be able to offer because the more you do that the more you start finding places where you can make links and it's really and it's really exciting when you see that you we have a dsp member who was working looking for work for a while and through the navigator she was able to find work at one full-time employment at one of the farms that are part of our community and that was not a farm actually it's a garden community garden but yeah so it was that was a really exciting moment and in, in seeing how just developing strong connections with with people led to really being able to bring something of value to someone. That's where the focus is when we look at the navigator. I'm like, I, I'm not interested in seeing 50 people posting every day. I'm not interested in seeing everyone liking, commenting. I'm interested in people finding jobs and people finding food and people finding friends and making connections. I think the term that Lisa used and that a lot of people have liked, and it's and it's part of our messaging and the app is, is move at the speed of trust. As pretty as it sounds, I think it is a very true statement that, you know, you move by building trust and relationships. And I would ditto that. Absolutely. And the other thing I'll say about trust as a team, we are immersing ourselves in book slash methodology called emergent strategy, which is about how you make social change. And in terms of trust, one of the things that emergent strategy talks about is that if you trust people, people will become trustworthy. And I think that for us, in my past experience, we've been like, okay, I know the answer to this question. If we can just get people to buy into my answer, then we can build what they need or we can get them to engage in a way that we think is right for them. But if you turn that around and you go, I don't necessarily know the answer and I'm going to trust that the community knows the answer and you build that over time because you're building relationships, you're actually going to build a better product and you're going to build a stronger community because you've put relationships and trust at the center versus piece of technology at the center versus an engagement plan at the center you know, versus metrics at the center, you've put community at the center and you're trusting the community to tell you what they need. And it is then your job to help provide what they need. I think moving at the speed of trust is one of the quotes that probably one of the top quotes from Connect. So I'm thrilled that you brought it up again, because it's, I think, something that people need to internalize as they're building their communities. What's next for you guys? You've got the app off the ground. You're, you're seeing initial success. What are the next six to 12 months look like? I'm sure you're busy, but would love to hear what your goals and aspirations are for the Community Food Navigator. We're experimenting. I think we are in this great position right now it is a startup organization. We're still only three years into it. We are figuring out as an organization where we're going. We're figuring out how the app as a tool can continue to provide value. And that actually gives us some ability to experiment and just try things and say, hey, is it going to work or is it not going to work? And actually, that's a lot of fun to do. And we have a group, the Digital Stewardship Pod or DSP, that, that will help us along to do that. So it's not like we're doing it on our own. We have community voices all along the way that will help to provide ideas for us and help lead in doing the experiments. And so I think that's pretty exciting for me 
to just think about as someone who's been in this space for almost 20 years now, it is nice to be able to actually say, you know what, I don't need to like figure out all the answers and we can have some fun with just experimenting and seeing what works. And we don't necessarily have to stick to tried and true or the things that I've done in the past. We can throw some spaghetti at the walls and and see what sticks. And I think that's a lot of fun. That makes sense. I'm going to try the impossible. I'm going to try and move the conversation from thought-provoking and inspiring to somewhat frivolous because we have a speed round we like to do at the end of these podcasts and it wouldn't be the same without it. So if you guys are game, we'd love to ask a few questions and we can we can just talk about these. So the first one I'd like to ask is, are you a member of Team Dog or Team Cat? I'm dog all the way. I like both, but I think it's tough because I'm never going to have a cat because my wife is allergic, even though we both prefer cats. So... Interesting. Cat. <laughs> Maybe consider one of those hairless cats. It's just something to think about. <laughs> it's just something to think about. What are you binging right now? Seinfeld. Wow. wow. Going old school there, Israel. I am finishing up The Bear, <laughs> which is, you know, Chicago based. So I, I love that. I will say also, I'm, I'm learning Portuguese. And so I'm also watching a bunch of Brazilian shows too. <laughs> oh, amazing. My daughter uh, did a semester abroad in France, and she prepared for that trip by watching a lot of Spanish shows, like talk shows and things like that on YouTube. Super helpful. So we all developed our approaches to working from home over the last few years. I wonder if you have a favorite work from home hack. Before before the pandemic, I was a wedding videographer and then a bartender. So I started working in an office or like having an office job during the pandemic. Hmm. And so... I mostly just don't know <laughs> what <laughs> what would be different if I had started. But I'll just say is it's nice to not have to worry about lunch because I can usually just eat leftovers from yesterday's dinner. For me, I, I don't know. It's being positioned in sunlight. I had my desk in a second bedroom, which really did not get a lot of sun when the pandemic started. And... I had to move it like I I moved it into the middle of my living, not in the middle, but into my living room. Fortunately, my living room is pretty big. And so just having the natural sunlight during the day has saved me because I don't know what I would have felt like if I had stayed in that sort of windowless second bedroom. What is your favorite dessert? Oh, chocolate peanut butter ice cream. Whoa, Whoa. that was fast. Um, there's no question about Lisa's yeah I mean the the trouble with me is that it would probably be something very specific to Mexican food it'd be Carlota which is kind of like a Mexican key lime pie uh tell me more the last episode we made the guest pay what I call the cat tax with pictures of her cats and so you're gonna have to pay the dessert tax and send us a recipe so I can share that with everyone. <laughs> all right. All right. I'll send a recipe. My mom actually has a cookbook and I'm pretty sure it's in there. So I'll send your, it. Your mom has a cookbook? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You really buried the lead here. I feel like <laughs> possibly should have started with that. I mean, it's not like it's it's not like it's like a bestseller or anything. It's like it's pretty much just what our family uses and she published it herself. I think she sold like I think she made like fifty dollars online selling it online. Fifty more dollars uh, than I've sold. Yeah, yeah, but I'll uh, I'll send the recipe and the link to the cookbook. Yes. Yeah, she might sell two more. I'm yeah, sure. <laughs> definitely gonna sell one more. So, yeah. <laughs> all right, all right. 
And I have to say, Israel, I'm disappointed that this is the first time I'm hearing about this. <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll do you one better, too. I actually took the photos for the cookbook and I did the English translation because it's originally in Spanish. Oh, my goodness, Israel. <laughs> Seriously. That's oh, part of my day. I love learning home recipes. This is stuff that I research. It's great. Israel, when I tell the rest of the team that you have been hiding this, you're going to be in trouble. Let me just tell you that. Well, I guess we already know Israel's uh, community superpower. It's like silence or hiding okay. things. Or... What, what is really oh, what interesting is superpowers? community superpower is definitely not silence. Yeah, no. <laughs> but he yeah. does bury things, apparently. Your superpower, Israel? I don't like being boastful more than anything. So that's that's why I don't share things. <laughs> I think I think my my cultural history, just being an immigrant, speaking Spanish, I've learned to really disconnect from myself and listen to people and try to put myself in their shoes. I don't know how exactly those two relate now that I think about it. But yeah, I like just kind of slowing down and just reminding myself that I'm talking to a human being and just connecting with a person one-on-one -on -one. i'll go with that it's funny i i would normally say strategy is my superpower i'm a strategic thinker but this job has definitely changed me it's unlike any job that i've had before and it is a job that puts humans first as humans and so like Israel, I think it is ability to see people as humans first before anything else. We say it all the time, but you can't be successful. And I, Jim and I have been doing this work together for a really long time. You can't be successful in community if you don't like people. Like it's just mm -hmm. not for you if you can't see the human first and, and care about people and what they're going through. So I think those are two fundamental superpowers so our final question is who or what is your community inspiration my first thought because we work in nature <laughs> is i i actually think of ant communities they communicate with each other they work together ants have their own roles and i'm not an ant subject matter expert but even you know what we've i think all learned in school about and they are to community that lives together works together designs together takes care of each other and i think that's a good role model it's fascinating on a podcast we recorded recently the person talked about slime mold the way communities grow and kind of work together when you put them in a slime mold. It was also from nature. So I'm seeing a parallel here. I kind of don't want to follow up with another nature one, but I couldn't think of anything. And, and Lisa's made me think of something, which is true, which is mushrooms and mm -hmm. just like fungus in general. Because I think something kind of going with Lisa's point earlier about like experimenting and things like that. I really like fungus and mushroom because, you know, we tend to think of like fungus as a part of decay. But mushrooms and fungus also build connections and they also generate life. And so in, in a lot of ways, they're actually bringing things back to life and using decay to to create something that's nourishing and, and can actually be good again. And I like that because I think a, a reminder for me is just there's no timeline. There's no award or deadline we're trying to meet. Every Everything is just a part of the process. If something succeeds or fails, it's still there's still nourishment to be gained from it. One of my favorite things about this question is that it's kind of vague, 
And I love hearing how people interpret it. And it's always so specific to the work they do. And it was just wonderful. I loved those answers. Thank you for sharing. Thank you both for coming on today. This was amazing. We had a lot of fun. So thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. I really just did this to try to sell my mom's cookbook. So. <laughs> and it worked. <laughs>